Welcome to TechnoSocial. My name is Daniel Fraga. And I'm Owen Cox. Here we're talking about all things shamanic, symbolic, occult, and technology. Consider becoming our patron, donating, and helping us continue to pump more of this weird and wacky content from the other side of reality all the way to the comfort of your own screen. We hope you enjoy. do what I, I sort of playfully refer to as escaping the state of nature. So, you know, the state of nature is dangerous. You know, all, all living things have been born into this world where, you know, there's, there's some cooperation, but there's definitely competition and, you know, we're, we're, we're going to perish and all of that. Uh, and escaping that feels like just sort of a, a, a warm environment of whatever it is that you like. So we call that the kind of lotus eating. So that this is old kind of, you know, Homer, type reference to, to the, the lotus eaters on, on, I forget the name of the island that, uh, that, that the lotus eaters were on, but, but these are folks who are sort of pursuing pleasure. Um, while world eaters um, are not necessarily Machiavellian per se, I, I don't want to paint them in any kind of moral light, but these are folks who um, would, would prefer to, who, who essentially believe, let's put it this way, who essentially believe that you have to be strong to be safe. So these are people who enter the digital world um, in order to compete more effectively in the state of nature rather than escape from it. And in my personal opinion, I'm not advocating for people being more ambitious or controlling, but, but I do think that there is no escape for, for the state of nature. So that there will be another category of folks who leverage these technologies to really better wield their own ability to, to manage people, not necessarily manipulate to anything happen manage people, manage processes, pursue their objectives, potentially garner, you know, control and influence in things like politics, things like business, things like the future of technology, who want to sort of really have a more firm stake um, in the digital and even the physical world by going into these digital systems. So this is a smaller group of people who are more ambitious and who don't feel comfortable escaping the state of nature they feel as though they won't be safe unless they continue to compete in it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's actually a lot of truth to that latter position, uh, but we can go in whatever direction. Mm -hmm. we want. Okay, so do you think that in order to achieve dominance in the digital sphere, uh, what are the big differences between how to achieve dominance in the digital sphere versus how to achieve dominance uh, in the real world as has been done hitherto? In other words, is there any, what are the most uh, salient differences? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I like your Shakespeare in English. Um, so uh, I, uh, I like thine, thine Shakespeare in English. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I would say that the, the way that I frame it, so I have another essay called The Substrate Monopoly, which is pretty Googleable, just those two terms, substrate monopoly. Basically, I think thus far, so for a very, very long time, um, dominance was, you know, size of your army, and their relative allegiance, you know what I mean? Um, and, and your ability to wield them, um, which I presume, you know, had to do with, uh, you know, can you feed them well? You know, do you have a society that's wealthy enough to give them the right kind of, you know, bronze or the right kind of steel or the right kind of what have you? Um, that, that then kind of expanded into kind of winning the economic and the technological progress game, in addition to having the most force. And force, mm -hmm. obviously, now is much more technology than it is muscle uh, compared to, you know, 2000 years ago. Um, moving forward, my supposition is that what winning looks like, you know, for, for the epitomally ambitious, for, 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 you know, for the Napoleons of whoever's alive now, uh, the highest win is essentially owning the digital substrate where the majority of human experience is housed and where the most powerful AI live. Let me just give you an example. That's very abstract. So let's just say, and I'm not calling Zuckerberg bad or good. I'm going to do very little like uh, demonizing and deifying on, on this chat. I just, I just happen to believe that uh, I, I have a really hard time putting horns and, and halos on people. I just have a mm. very hard time. So pure neutral. Let's just talk about Zuckerberg. Let's say that the investment in Oculus was a very smart one. Let's say that by whatever fluke, um, uh, he's able to have a huge amount of uh, work, you know, we're, we're all in this pandemic, so we're doing more things digitally. VR has not necessarily skyrocketed during this period, but over the course of the next, 
you know, decade and a half, I suspect it, it will at some point. Um, if we start to live, if we have, you know, visors on our eyes, right now I have all these monitors. If eventually we can have experience on our eyes where we can do really effective work. We can have all the screens open, doing whatever we need to do on all of our different screens. We can have notifications kick in, have, you know, background environments that are soothing or exciting relative to what we need to be maximally productive. We can exist in those environments for work. We're, we're going we're gonna to work there because it'll be more enjoyable and productive. Um, similarly with relating to people, you know, you and I write very few handwritten letters. We do a lot of these Skype type calls. Eventually there will be something more immersive, more interesting than that for connecting with people. Eventually, you know, the technology already, you know, you have people that are, you know, dating who've never met. Um, I think that that will become, you know, all, all the more prevalent as technologies become more super immersive. So what I'm getting at is as more and more of the developed world live bulk of their waking hours inside of a virtual system, not at screens, but, but actually like all their senses pumped into a virtual system. Whoever owns that virtual system basically owns what is functionally reality. Functionally reality is reality is perceived. So they, they'll, they'll own functionally own reality. Um, if you functionally own reality, if most of what's going on with human beings happens on in your substrate, in your compute, across your system, that data can be trained on, that data can develop machines that are great at conversation, that are great at sales, that are great at, um, uh, you name it, whatever it is that humans are doing, writing code, you know, uh, creating art, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. So where the bulk of human sentience lives, in virtual substrate, I suspect the, the most powerful AI will also live. And if, if you can own that, and I don't know if any human or any one party will, but if you can, um, own the substrate where the majority of human experience and, and strongest AI exist, that would be winning in the future. Very mm. different than bronze, very different than growing corn, uh, that that would be winning in, in, in uh, the technological future. I suspect. I suspect. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So I just want to say two things. One of them is, uh, I think that really vibes very well with uh, uh, an idea that Owen and I have been exploring, which is the idea of ontological design, meaning that design uh, you can design reality by basically curating the perception of people by carefully curating the configuration of digital touch points and actually also physical touch physical touch points with which the human interacts and you can or, you know solve that equation for the purpose of ontological creativity for designing the person's sense of reality cults have been doing this facebook's been doing this now a question that i have for you yeah. is do you think that in this future where you know people will be striving to dominate the substrate Will the advertising, will, will the ad revenue model still be king? Or do you foresee any sort of change in that? Is it still going to be a world where people are going to really try to extract attention, extract dollars from the users? Or will there perhaps be another one? That, that's a really, really, really good question. So as we exist in virtual spaces more immersively, um, yeah, what will be the, the king of kings for business models? Um, I, you know... I suspect, um, so advertising, I, I would imagine, would still be a massive part of that. Um, E-commerce in its various forms, I imagine, would still be a massive part of that, although a lot more of that e-commerce will be for virtual goods, I suspect. I, I don't know precisely what that will look like, but I, I, I do think that people will be paying for more non-physical things increasingly. I would imagine if you went back 20 years, we paid for many less on physical things than we do now in the next 10 years and then the next five years. I, I would imagine that going forward that that trend would continue. Um, so e-commerce, you know, Amazon, obviously not an unsubstantial company. Um, I, I would mm -hmm. suspect that in, in this virtual environment, if your needs can be fulfilled with a thought, with a word, with a tap, um, you know, th those needs will often involve physical goods or, or digital goods. Um, so I, I suspect that that will be also rather, rather powerful. Um, but I, what, what might throw a wrench into some of that, um, and, and you're, you're really kind of making me think about this problem for the first time, what's the business model in this space? Um, what might throw a wrench into that is I'm not exactly sure how many um, physical processes in the world today will enter the virtual world and then become massive virtual economies while they are physical now. Um, so... 
uh, you know, finance is obviously still going to be a very, very big deal. Right now, we don't think of finance as like hot, sexy tech stuff. But if it becomes seamlessly enmeshed with everything that we're doing with those e-commerce transactions, with that advertising, with, uh, you know, how, how we're sustaining ourselves and building savings or whatever in these virtual worlds, I imagine that'll get pulled in. Um, so I, I guess to answer your question again, I, I haven't I contemplated it in, in robust depth. Um, I suspect e-commerce and advertising will still be very powerful. I also suspect a, a good deal of industries that today are really done on a handshake, are done by a guy driving a truck from one place to another place, are, are going to get sucked into a virtual world, and that those will become big digital economies. Exactly which I can't tell you right now, um, mm-hmm. but uh, but that, that's my that's my gut to be honest. Haven't given mm-hmm. it. <clears throat> Because I think that um, somehow connects with, let's say, the design of realities, maybe that becoming a digital good, maybe reality design itself becoming one of the determining yes. factors, because perhaps, you know, while physical reality is linear, then vi- virtual reality is gestalt, or rather it teaches us that all reality is virtual. It doesn't really jive with the same patterns that real reality does. Uh, in real reality, this hand is not this hand. But in both dream states, as per Carl Jung, or in virtual worlds, as I would argue, just on a limb here, maybe the difference between things becomes much more diluted. The, the connection between the, the baseline ontology, epistemology of how we make sense of things can become creative prime matter. 100%. So I, I can't agree with you more in terms of, so I, I refer to this as sort of the increasing malleability of, of reality. So w- one of the factors of momentum here, I actually, I'm going to try to pull up my, uh, my, my, um, the, the lengthier article that I have on this piece, um, just to, to kind of make sure I'm wording it the right way to when I thought about it most robustly. But, um, yeah, I, I think that, um, virtual worlds as, so initially what's going to happen is we're going to go in to pursue the things that we think we want in the physical world. So, so I've used this analogy, please pardon me, but I hope you'll chuckle. Uh, um, you know, like we'll go into VR to like be in a hot tub with 1997 Mariah Carey. You know what I mean? Like we'll go in for what we perceive our ideals to be. Like we'll, we'll enter in the pursuit of what we as hominids living in this physical world want. What will occur, I suspect, is that there will be permutations of experience in the virtual world that start to not really correlate all that well to, to, to what we know in the, in, in the physical space, mm-hmm. whether it's how physics works, you know, whether it's um, what we find attractive, whether it's what we do creatively, whether it's how many limbs we have, right? You can enter virtual worlds and be a lobster where, you know, you, you move certain muscles around your ribs and you're starting to move middle legs, you know, in a virtual world. And so you don't necessarily have to have this physical shape in a virtual world. And, and it, it will become the case where that's not necessarily weird. That just kind of is. Everybody gets it. It's malleable. So let me give you an example of this. Um, let's take toddlers today, or let's even take teenagers today. And then let's take 60-year-old folks. For 60-year-old folks, the digital world and the physical world are pretty separate things. For teenagers today, they are one mesh of what life is. They're one mesh yes. of what life is. And so at some point, the same will be the case for the malleability of physical experience, of sense, of creativity, of what mm-hmm. we go in for. We will enter not for, oh, yeah, I really liked that back in the monkey world. We will enter for blooming expanses of new sensory and creative and uh, uh, volitional kind of like activities that, that there's really very few proxies for in the real world. And those will be better, more attuned, more fulfilling, more creative, more interesting than anything we could have done in the regular space. And it will become somewhat obvious that that blooming of experience is really the only path to greater creativity, greater fulfillment, um, greater tailoredness to our own unique preferences. Mm. I don't think that's going to happen immediately. I think all of initial VR is going to be proxying for what we think we want in the physical world. But I think as malleability becomes the norm, we're quickly just going to suck out into the vacuum of what could be, which is vastly more than the physics of mm. this uh, permits. It's this wild consumer future, right? Like the digital is going to give us our dreams. And what it always makes me think about is how this is going to impact 
politics, political struggle, if that's going to be possible at all in a future where the majority of people can plug into a machine and get a fucking hot dopamine load of everything that supposedly the system wants. You know, the traditional left is already struggling and that it's almost impossible to unite people around anything common enough to pursue mainstream change, right? And I, I just foresee, foresee this kind of fragmentation at the level of consumer choice continuing more and more until people just, it's, it's impossible to band together and actually to demand to change things. And then building on that as well, there will be a sense that already politics plays out still at the levels of capital and distribution of capital and, and other more classical resources. Digital space is barely on the agenda in most political conversations. The best they can really talk about is, um, is regulating the big companies, right? What we should, should we do with data? But when it comes, comes to the actual big power struggles between your Googles and your Facebooks and whoever these VR competitors in, are in the future who are actually going to be owning reality space itself. I struggle to foresee how people who were once voters, once democratic systems, uh, democratic citizens are going to have much of a chance to interface with it at all, other than through their own consumer preferences expressions, which is always going to be given by the machine in advance. I mean, I'm full blown with you. And I think that the, the wrestling around how is politics going to deal with this, I'd love to dive a little bit more into that. I believe that it may take us another 10 years but here's, here's the supposition that I have at the top of that substrate monopoly article. Um, it, it's as follows. Uh, in the remaining part of the 21st century, all competition between the world's most powerful nations and organizations, whether economic, political, or military, is about gaining control over the computational substrate that houses human experiences and, and human experience and AI. So if you own that, if you're, so this is not going to be something that Lithuania does. This is not going to be something that Peru does very well. This is not going to be something that your mom and pop restaurant down the street does very well. But Google, the CCP, the Department of Defense, Facebook, they're players in this game. I, look, if I'm lying, I'm dying. I'm just telling you, I think they're players in this game. And it kind of end a story on that, in my opinion. Um, so I think uh, I think CCP already gets this. China already gets this. Um, if they own the substrate, then, yeah, they can. It's not just uh, yeah, they, they can mold. Um, the perspectives and opinions that they'd like. Like you said, even your consumer preferences might be defined ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it'd be great if your political perceptions could be defined ahead of time. I think China's potentially doing you know, a decent job of, of you know, what tyranny should look like um, if, if you want to own opinion and, and you want to own, uh, you know, you want to squash dissent and, and you want to do that from the inside out. Um, I, think, I think they're really going to be on their way. And I think you know, the, the Chinese virtual ecosystem uh, that you wear on your face will be much like the Chinese virtual ecosystem that's on your laptop, if you go there, uh, which is to say very bounded uh, to their aims. Um, and, you know, that's that's mm -hmm. one approach, right? One approach is you just you just lop off freedoms. Um, I, I do think that you're right to say, how are people going to bind together and sort of make, you know, democracy, quote unquote, sort of function if everybody go into these, what we could call kind of these lotus eating environments um, and, and sort of have what they want? I think there's a lot of reasons why that's a very, very valid question. One of them is that I foresee that continued immersion in these sort of really, it, it won't just be, you know, there won't just be a bifurcation between the people going into these systems to pursue power in the state of nature and those pursuing escape in it from it. Um, there will also be a, a bifurcation between individuals because if you're living in an environment totally tailored to you, that all of a sudden really doesn't have all that many correlations and proxies to, to the physical world, um, your ability to relate to other people might just not be real, right? If, if, I, if most of the time when I'm in VR, I'm a giant spider, okay? And, and I do things like, I don't know, I surf between galaxies and like I have like some creative endeavors that are very strange, like they correlate to no art that you've ever heard of. And like my, my like sexual drives have been kind of bent into like some, some weird, strange, I'm not saying this, this is like weird to say, but bent into some, some obscure perversion that has nothing to do with what males and females are attracted to right now, or very little, right? It's really, really very little, but, but that happens to like, it happens to be funneled in. It happened to resonate well enough, but my imagination spun on it and that the programmatically generated 
systems kind of fed it to me. And, and mm-hmm. that's how I fulfill needs. Like when I go and talk to you at a coffee shop, if such a thing still exists, or in a Zoom call, a virtual Zoom call, um, am I going to be able to relate to you better or worse than if I just lived in hominid reality where we're all talking about the same politics, the same sports teams, we all have the same physical forms that are only between a certain range of height, right? I'm, I'm going to have more in common with you. I suspect that human relationships, I, I, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but I suspect the human relationships will become vastly uh, for, for the lotus eaters, maybe the world eaters will be different. For the lotus eaters, vastly less important. I believe that people will be able to have teachers um, who are not human teachers, but who can teach them Spanish, who can teach them singing, who can teach them whatever, writing, better than any human teacher could because these will be programmatically generated entities uh, with, with a form, with a voice, with an instruction that's much better than any human could do. Same thing with, we might say, and I hate to say this, same thing with maybe friendship, right? What if you had a friend who didn't have any of their own agendas, uh, who didn't have any of their own tremendous baggage maybe, but who had the wisdom of, you know, uh, the, the, the Marcus Aurelius and, you know, the, the, the knowledge of leadership of, you know, Pericles and, you know, Washington or something and, and the, uh, you know, understanding of science of, you know, name, name your damn people, right? Um, wouldn't their advice just be better? You know, and and, and uh, wouldn't you almost prefer to hang out with them? The same starts to tweak in on the romantic side, it starts to tweak in, you know, as we start to get haptics become a little bit more viable, really emergency VR becomes a little bit more viable, the perfect mate, if you will, I think this might be 30 years out, I'm not saying this is next year, may also become more viable. Now we're all the more disconnected. So I see us yanking away from a lot of personal connection on, on the Lotus mm-hmm. side. And, and I do think that that'll make it rather challenging to say, how do we wield politics? What does this look like when everybody just wants to, to jack into their own completely mm. different weird space? I, I think it's going to be very challenging if we get there. I love yeah, right. Like, I, love I imagine that. that you're just going to chill with your crew of perverted spiders, whether there's five of you or 50 of them or 500 of you. And that'll be it. You'll zip around the virtual universe. I mean, that's kind of already what happens on a lot of these message boards that exist these days, right? It's like, you might as well call people virtual spiders for, <laughs> for some of the ways they, they act and indeed express their libido. Now, you mentioned this kind of like 30 years out. I'm curious to get a bit deeper into what you think the time span will be on this stuff. Because something that I find myself troubling over more recently is I think we're in for a bumpy ride over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Coronavirus, the economic breakdowns. We don't know what's going to happen with the environment. And things look like they're getting destabilized. There's a lot of anger. There's violence, certainly on the streets in America. If I was the CCP or someone else playing world building, it would begin to make a lot of sense to say, how can we be suddenly prodding people more and more towards the VR world just so we can chill them down so they can express more of this, this energy into this fragmented virtual space instead of it playing out on the streets? Yeah. I mean, I, I think... It's kind of its own conversation um, about whether communist, you know, the communist leadership of China sort of like right now, there's a lot of advantages. I mean, the best position to be in in the world right now, if you were Napoleon, would be Xi Jinping. Um, Just if he was reborn, right? It'd be the best. If you were to take flesh again, it would be the best flesh to choose at present. Um, There is no better flesh at present. Uh, And and so... uh, the CCP has a lot of great advantages. Now, they've got some disadvantages, but they've got a lot of great advantages. One of them is that our digital ecosystem is very permeable. So you can come into America and you can buy our movie theaters. You can come into America, you can buy our gaming companies or buy sufficient chunks of them. You can come into America and open up a social account on YouTube, on Twitter, on whatever, and just get in front of as many Americans as possible. Um, it, we're, we're really permeable, you know, and, and you can create content online in any language, and we're going to be able to search and find it literally two milliseconds later. And so uh, we've got a really, you know, our, our openings go both ways. We, we, don't, we don't really have doors. Like our doors don't have hinges. They don't have physical. You, everybody walks in, everybody walks out. It's, it's pretty easy stuff. Um, <clears throat> China's got a little bit of a different ball game. A lot of stuff ain't going in there. And also when you're in that ecosystem, you're really only accessing what, what they prefer that you access. And you're really only saying what they damn well prefer that you say. Um, 
because you can be muted and drowned out or they'll just come to your house and, and break your legs, right? And it's, it's like not an exaggeration, right? I, I, don't, I don't like like people interpret this stuff as exaggerations. Like people have to Google things. You get to Google things. So um, so that's that's China. So it, their, their ecosystem, you know, no Google, no Twitter, no Facebook, right? I mean, a, a lot of stuff ain't going in. Certainly, America's not buying the movie theaters in China. They're not buying the gaming companies in China. So we've got this amazingly permeable system where if you wanted to stir dissent or bare minimum just stir confusion, um, then you you just, the doors are open. I mean, economic doors, technological doors. I mean, they're, they're not even there. Again, like we have a house, but there's no there's no doors, there's no hinges, there's no, no locks. You just walk in when you want. Um, over there, of course, they have a really nicely controlled environment where the, the propaganda schema can be just perfectly molded by by them. And I, I don't think that's an easy task, but I think that if you wanted to own mind space as people enter virtual space, um, you'd want to do it like China does. I'm not saying I wish America was like that. I'm just saying if you were Napoleon and you wanted to take flesh again, you would want to be Xi Jinping. I think he's in a great position to, you know, to wield his, his uh, human mass uh, in, in, a, in his substantial human mass. Uh, in in a uh, fruitful way, at mm -hmm. least in the perspective of his ruling party and in his own ambition. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think I think our permeability is a beautiful thing. It's also a, a disgusting weakness in the face of adversaries that that don't have anything like uh, the, those those kind of permeability uh, issues. One of the things that I like that this conversation now delved into politics, and I want to connect this with uh, the term that we've been using, virtual realities, <clears throat> is the following. Um, I usually say that virtual reality taught us that all reality is virtual. So in a way, even our current real reality doesn't really, what's the real line where it's separate, where it stops being real and it starts to become virtual? Well, my favorite post-humanist Robert Pepperell has a nice definition when he says that in the post-human world, the difference between the human and its environment is diluted. It doesn't really exist. They are a continuous mesh, like the Instagram kids that you mentioned today. Yeah. And that's very interesting because in the same way that this, you know, this jacket is a continuation of my skin because it helps me stay warmer, so is my computer a continuation of my brain in so many functions. And power is a property of the large CCPs, Googles, and Facebooks of this world. But Foucault said it's also a property of the small relations that exist, right? So much of a contemporary leftism really likes to, to take that and, 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 and politicize that. However, from the perspective of irregular warfare, and I'm going to get more specific here, irregular warfare is really about taking, uh, let's imagine Surkov and the Russians and the information campaigns that have been put on, on the democracy that is America. In irregular warfare, size doesn't really matter too much. What matters is the real relationships, the small relationships of power that can be sort of weaponized. So I can pay a guy $800 a month to keep making Facebook posts and creating Facebook events so that, you know, a couple of groups in America get together and they are from opposite sizes of a political spectrum and there's maybe a fight happening there. And po uh, polarization increases despite the fact that this guy is, is working on a budget. It's the same thing. It's like using a $200 bomb to take down a $2 million drone. Yeah. There's, there's a sort of asymmetrical aspect to that. I want to I wanna poke your brain now on the following. In the virtual world, there's also asymmetrical thing, uh, dynamics happening. So it's, I would argue or ask you, like, is, is it that the Googles and the Facebooks of this world being the giant behemoths that they are in their relationship with the physical, physical world, will that domination automatically translate to the virtual world? Or is it that there will be players or a know-how or a craft or a democratized sort of craft that will allow people to understand that, hey, reality is actually this very malleable thing. And this is currently the, the field of battle. So uh, we'll, we can create our own insurrection here. We can maybe try to protect our little bubble of reality from, from whatever other powers are there. I don't know if this is clear. Yeah. I, I, let me see if I can clarify and then mm. I'm happy to dive in. Yeah. Um, you're saying are the only folks that are viably able to compete, you know, the CCP, the, the U.S. government or something, Facebook, Google, Baidu, are they the only people that are going to be able to create 
these spaces and curate these spaces, or are individual clusters of people going to be able to, you know, step up and really throw a wrench in the gears and either create their own or really screw up the big existing systems of the mm. Facebooks and the Googles? It's just kind of what you're talking about. Will the little guy have enough advantage to just really be chewing apart the big guys? Is this kind of what you're getting at? Kind of. So let me try to summarize it in the following. Uh, is the current balance of physical power in the physical world going to translate uh, into the virtual world or is there a rebalancing going to come about? Well, I already think there's a rebalancing. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this on our last interview, but I, I uh, had a friend who's relatively high up in the United Nations and was at a World Economic Forum event with one of the, let's, let's go eight years back, one of the, you know, leading execs at, at Google, like, you know, you could say the, the leading exec at Google, um, and sort of, you know, guessingly kind of talking about, you know, Google potentially being more more powerful than, than countries, um, and, and sort of receiving quite an affirmative uh, understood answer that, that yes, that, that is, of course, the case. Um, you know, and, and that they, they themselves understand this rather well. Uh, Google doesn't have that many tanks in so much as I know. Uh, Google's workforce, as far as I can tell, probably isn't very good at fist fighting. <clears throat> uh, at least the ones that I, you know, and I lived in Mountain View, I just, you know, I, I, I presume I could, I could, you know, I could, I, I could probably take out a couple of them. Um, yeah. not, not that I'd want to, right? I, I'm not saying that, but. <laughs> but uh, no, that's not what they're built for, right? I mean, it, it's not, it's not, it's not a rugby team. These are developers, right? I mean, so, um, and and they shouldn't be. I'm not saying they should all be burly fellas with swords, right? I mean, of course, they're not. That's that's the example. Uh, so so already, I think we see companies that are more powerful than many many countries, more influential than many many countries, who own none of the physical power stuff that you and I are talking about. Google doesn't own as much space as Lithuania. Google doesn't have as many tanks as Lithuania. Google doesn't have a fighting force. Um, Google just influences a digital ecosystem. And we could argue that pound for pound, they're, you know, more influential and in a great many ways more powerful than, than mm -hmm. uh, entire, entire country. So I think that'll continue. I think that'll continue. I think that um, the, the big physical powers, particularly from a, a politics perspective. So right now, mostly the US and China, in my opinion, um, have a bit of an up because they get to mold how the law works and how things operate within their countries. Their countries are very rich. And so they're going to see a lot of that innovation, right? It's, it's, it would be very unusual if the next Google came out of, I don't know, Ecuador, right? Um, like it's, I guess it's possible, but I, you know, I wouldn't bet $20 on it. Um, so I, you know, it's very likely that the, the highest innovations are going to happen in these, these wealthy nations and that they'll have some ability to decide how they want that power to extend out of their country and into the world. China, of course, will be able to make all of those entities into tendrils uh, and, and wielded arms for, for behooving the ends of, of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, the United States doesn't do uh, mm -hmm. really, really doesn't do, does nothing of the same the same, the same kind of overtness uh, of that, um, but but will potentially have some ability, right? If Google got to some point where, you know, they, they had developed artificial general intelligence that was pretty convincing, um, you know, it, it seems likely that the DoD could, whenever they want, just kind of walk over there and take it. Um, you know, it seems like that's probably what would mm -hmm. happen, right? If, if it became a dire and existential thing, like, oh, Google within two years, it's going to be more powerful than the United States. It's mm -hmm. like, well, probably the DOD would just take it. And probably most Americans would prefer that. Um, they would prefer like the country have it as opposed to whatever. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I'm just suspecting mm -hmm. that. Okay. So there's some advantage, I suspect, to the physical power correlates now. They got the big economies, they're likely to see the big innovations, and they kind of get to decide what happens to those firms as they're coming up. China gets to wield them, just like another arm, just tack on another arm, call it TikTok, call it uh, you know, Alibaba, whatever you want to do and start swinging with that thing. The U.S., a little bit less hands-on, but when push comes to shove, they'll probably ultimately have control over the most powerful tech if they really want to. Uh, Google just doesn't have fighter planes, right? I, I mean, the DOD could take out two-thirds of Google employees and 
in any given 15 minute span. Um, so uh, that's why I think the physical world will still have uh, a, a lot of a lot of sway. I might be able to be convinced otherwise, but I I think there's some real magnetism to, mm. to, to these, these places of real physical power. Well, that's maybe precisely where I, what I'd like to press you. Is it obvious? The nature of the power of Google and of the Department of Defense are very different. Now, power is not always overt and manifested through armies or physical force. Uh, it could be argued that the ability of uh, information purveyance and dissemination companies like Google uh, is a power that is softer, more occult, more hidden, and that nonetheless might have a large impact on the rest of the substrate on which it exists for example you know the factors that led rome to fall include external force factors but there were also internal let's call it what's the word mimetic ideological religious i don't know what, how to call them right yeah. alexander dugan calls this neomachia it's the war of the noose of the minds so, so yeah. War yeah 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 okay of mind entities of egregores of uh, autonomous bodies of ideas. Now, this is why I'm bringing this up, because it feels like the Googles and Facebooks of this world, why they don't have armies, and thank God, uh, they might be producing a sort of more subtle influence on the world. And uh, you mentioned that America in this case is very permeable. The open and freedom of speech and the open environment makes it more permeable to incursions precisely on this uh, sphere, right? That's why it's plausible and, and so accurate that information campaigns might have been done from other countries towards America and, you know, hide them between 20 shell companies. But we all know that it's, it's, it's totally possible and totally easy. And so that's kind of the, what I'm trying to dive a little bit deeper into. It's the dynamics of warfare or competition that exist in this new sphere, in this psychosphere, in the sphere of ideas. And the struggle that exists there seems to uh, seems to be kind of the definitional struggle. It's going to be the the Waterloo, if you want to keep Napoleoning. Uh, it's going to be the Waterloo that's going to define who's going to be the hegemon in the next few years. So it's not only going to be the physical hegemony, but maybe there's a big role to play in the Nuomachia sphere. Well, I mean, I'm with you. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, my stomach turns for where America's at. Um, for a great number of reasons. In terms of the new sphere, I mean, uh, if, if, if I'm to use the term, and I don't know if I'm doing so correctly, but th there's pretty clearly, um, you know, increasing division in, in the US, uh, you know, across a number of different strata. Um, and I, I think it might be easy to stoke those fires. There's a chance that certain things aren't, aren't reparable uh, with with that division and that maybe that would lead to something pretty rough. Um, I, I think that uh, there's a there's a book about the rise and fall of dynasties from the, I believe the 1300s written by um, uh, Ibn Khaldun, a book called the Muhadima, which is it just essentially tries to analyze why dynasties rise and fall. And one of the big concepts here, uh, kind of the, the the big driving point something he calls group feeling, which we might describe as solidarity. And I think that if you can wield your digital ecosystem in a way that encourages solidarity and industry, so that is to say, you know, hard work and um, at least some sense of we're the same. So hard, hard work and some sense of we're the same. If you can do that, um, you're gonna have a, a decent shot at maintaining dynasty. If you can't do that, you're gonna have a really, really hard time. And, and that, Often after a certain number of generations, people lose any reference for hard work. I, I would say uh, any third or fourth generation Americans, uh, I, not all of them, uh, not all of them. Uh, a great many of them though, their perception of hardship is, is uh, embarrassing. Uh, it's, uh, I'm embarrassed from afar uh, about it. Um, and it's, it's just tough, man. It's really, really tough what, what'll, What'll, uh, what seems like hardship, what seems like challenge, what seems like difficulty for, for someone born, you know, third, fourth generation in such a wealthy country, even if you're in the lower band of the middle class, it's still like, it's not Colombia, you know, it's not India, it's not, it's not the, it's, it's not 1820s American New England or something like that, where you were, you know, farming it and doing everything else. Um, we, we just lost a lot of the references. And, and I think there's some of that in China as well. But 
But yeah, both of those things, industry and solidarity, I think are what you want to maintain. I suspect in the digital space, so long as we're still hominids with the same equipment, Mm. um, two things will be preeminent. And I think that there's an argument made that China can do that, um, that they can, they can do that stuff pretty good with, with an ownership of the virtual ecosystem mm-hmm. while we might be able to just have our system shattered to bits over and over by for-profit companies who are potentially incentivized to have these, these echo chambers rattle against each other for all of eternity. And I'm not saying that Facebook is bad, right? I'm not defying or uh, demonizing Zuckerberg. I'm just saying it just so happens that that probably makes a lot more money than when people are cool with each other, right? Um, so that plus the permeability, by golly, I mean, you know, at least on the solidarity front, I, I'd love to be Xi Jinping. I'm not, I'm not saying I advocate for, mm-hmm. for authoritarianism. You understand? I'm just saying I would love to be Xi Jinping if I wanted solidarity. Mm, it feels worth mentioning here, Daniel, you already threw out the name Sirkov, but Sirkov's story without Sky is just a symbolic illustration of exactly just what we've been talking about. Like the basic idea being it's about a small village that has a war fought in the sky above it. And the war is a war between invisible combatants who just send airships, invisible airships to just blow each other up. And they're coming from all directions and there's combatants on all sides. The people can't see the battle. The only thing that happens is every now and again, a piece of debris flies down and falls on someone and kills them or turns them flat. That's the metaphor he uses. It turns them flat. And then there's a city away from this village that has walls around it. And at the end, all these refugees from the war try to come, all these flat two-dimensional refugees from the war try to come into the city and the city just won't let them in. Now, the way I read it is that the city is the strategy that your Russia and indeed probably your China are going for. Sirkov was at one point advising Putin. And I think the illustration of the village with the invisible warfare, that is the newest sphere at the moment in these permeable digital ecosystems. Now, the kind of troubling question is, is it that binary? Right. Are we stuck? Is it either cities with closed walls with tightly controlled digital ecosystems that might allow for, as you've said, hard work and a sense of belonging to something and is the other alternative just kind of digital schizophrenia i don't fucking know but it's scary and on that point i think there's a kind of question that i'd like to ask you um and which is spoken about the world building the perspective of the the big powers the companies the uh even the politicians but i think a lot of our listeners are youngsters like ourselves who are smart and paying attention to what's going on at the moment. Do you have any sense of what people should be doing? Any recommendations? Oh, man. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm loath to think that I'm even right about what I'm talking about here, you know? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm taking some stabs with you, you know? I, I, have, I have some ideas about what the weaknesses of um, free nations sort of are right now. Um, I have some stabs at, at what the trajectory of these technologies will do to the human experience, but um, I'm not, I'm, I won't pretend to crystal ball. Is there anything that I have? I mean, I, I would say the only thing that I feel pretty firm about is that we should really be discussing and hashing out what, what um, potentially new, whether that be evolutionary or revolutionary change, what potentially new balance we create with the virtual human experience. How, how is this to be, if, if, we, if we are to live, if we're to have solidarity in industry, um, which I, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think are pretty good things to have, um, then how, how are we to manage that? And, and I think that there's some interesting ideas floating around. I don't have any authors in mind, but I've heard it mentioned that by default, the strategy would be to just do what China's doing. They are the precedent of how to manage that. But I, I think that an important exercise that I don't have a prescription for, but that, that I, I would advocate we should talk about, um, would be what, what is another way? In other words, the way that I've framed it is, can we maintain our values and freedoms and in so doing also strengthen ourselves relatively in the international space? Because if we, if we virtue our way to having open doors and virtue our way to all these things that ultimately just decimate 
uh, you know, any kind of democratic country by get, get steamrolled economically and ideologically and technologically by uh, by other powers, then then in my opinion, they're not really virtues, you know. Um, so can, can, we uphold, can we uphold those virtues in a way that strengthens and bolsters uh, our, our actual ability to survive? So um, what, what would be that what would be that new way um, in terms of virtual ecosystems, their governance? Uh, their, you know, whatever it be, taxation and business model stuff, uh, you know, how we interact with external powers and, and users in general, how data is used for, for different kinds of folks. You know, is there a, is there, are there dynamics we can experiment with and maybe a vision we can start to inch closer to that will allow us to, to maintain values and survivability and strength? Um, if not, I think the default is crumbling or modeling China, which may not be ideal. Um, in terms of what, what we want to build in the world. So mm. that's the only thing I, I feel really strongly about is, is that I think that conversation needs to happen. It's very interesting because there's not really any model historically for large democracies and their survival. The American experiment is unique in that sense, being like a superpower and a democracy um, has a hard time dealing with this. Let me just read a little bit of Surkov so that you really have a feeling. Yeah, sure, sure. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it. So he's referring to the first nonlinear war, where it's a war of all against all. He's speaking about the coalitions and what coalitions they were, not like the earlier ones. It was a rare state that entered the coalition intact. What happened was some provinces took one side, some took the other, and some individual city or generation or sex or professional society of the same state took a third side. And then they could switch places, cross into any camp you like, sometimes even during battle. So I think what this quote really speaks about is the gestalt nature of irregular warfare. Whereas, you know, there's obviously traditional warfare has linear factions. You know very clearly who's doing battle. I feel that as we move towards this virtual world that is so inexorably marching towards us from the future, that also the nature of how we perceive war is going to get really mashed because, oh, maybe I'm a spider and I have two arms against other two arms, even myself containing multitudes and them all being recruited and extracted, uh, recruited for some faction doing war. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm not as familiar with, with these philosophers that you bring up, but I'm, I'm very interested in this work. I'm interested in this, this airplane and you know, debris analogy, like all these analogies. Like, oh, I wonder, you know, like I have my, my, I have the, I have the cauldrons from which I dip my label, uh, my label, which, is, which are normally, you know, history, biography, um, sort of Greece and Rome. But, uh, I, I, I dig what you're pulling into this, to this conversation here. And, and I, I think that, yeah, that, that swapping of factions and confused constant conflict. I mean, it feels like today's social media. It feels like such a cliche thing to say, but it, but it does feel like today's social media. Um, and I, I, I wonder if there's a way around that. I, I do think that your idea of irregular, this, this notion that you brought up of irregular warfare. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's the, it's, it's, it's the game as far as I can tell. I mean, like, China is doing the right things by, um, by using, using debt, for example, to win its ports, um, you know, uh, by, by buying media companies and gaming companies in the States and then making sure they can't talk about Uyghurs, right? That's very different than dropping a bomb on Pearl Harbor. Very, very different. You're going to get a very different response from the international, uh, 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 you know, community. Um, it's more plausibly deniable. It's potentially actually more influential and, and powerful, but it's not really warfare like we think about it, right? Um, and and, and I, I think that um, I think that that's where the game is going to play out. And I think the folks that are really sharp and savvy in that irregular space are are going to be the are going to be the winners. And I, I fear that our current dynamic of permeability and our current incentives for our current digital ecosystem companies are not really going to per permit for a strong West. I'm not demonizing Silicon Valley. I'm just saying, I think we really need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I wholly agree. This is like the China situation due to their unique Confucian backgrounds and the way that they cohere around making society happen. Uh, seems to have a, 
positional advantage when it comes to comparing itself with, with democracies who tend to be open and foster innovation. And innovating is hard. Copying is easy. And there's, there's, there's a momentum, you know, the momentum of the petrodollar and of, uh, you know, post 45 hegemony and prosperity might be coming to an end precisely because it's so open, precisely because it's so vulnerable, because it's like, it's like a breath. It took its breath and now it feels like, will it be waning? Well, I'm not in America, but when I look at the news, it does certainly feel like uh, it's crumbling under its own weight. Like you say, the question is really, can there, can, can democracy graduate to the digital age and stop thinking like it's 20, like 1820? I, I, uh, I think that's maybe a good way to put it. Can democracy graduate to the digital age? I, I think that might be a really good way of not shelling it, to be honest. Um, and, and creating that new vision is going to be another roll of the dice, right? That could go wrong in more ways than it could go right. Um, but, but I do think that if we're conscious about it, it may be possible to move in a better direction where values and survivability are, are strengthened, where, you know, uh, uh, I think that's, that's worth you know, mm-hmm. we're striving for it, Jen. So I'm, I'm glad we got to we got to end on that note here today as we come towards ten. Yeah, uh, that 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 sounds that sounds precisely it. I just want to like add another one. I don't want to keep you for too long. Oh. It feels like the values that need to perhaps graduate are not only the values of democracy, but the ones that uh, underpin it: the Enlightenment values, the uh, the Illuminism, the all those thinkers. They came up with something, and it feels like the Internet age requires something different. So that, that might be it. Yeah. I mean, I, would it, wouldn't surprise me if there's some, uh, some additional wave of kind of underpinning values that also needs to evolve. And, you know, that, that, that wave had some struggles, uh, my good man, you know, mm. to come about. And I, I think the next one will too. I've got my fingers crossed. We'll, we'll, we'll all be all right in the transition, but, um, Yeah. Hmm. I'll, have to, I'll have to read more of those authors you guys quoted today. I appreciate uh, appreciate getting schooled a little bit on your your areas of expertise today. I'll make sure to send. Oh, that, send we love you. your schooling too, man. It's always good talking to you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. Thank you for your time, and uh, bye bye. Always a pleasure. All right, catch you later, guys. Bye bye. Take care, mate. enjoyed the show consider becoming our patron and helping us put out more content like this patreon.com forward slash techno social